Thank you for joining us for this episode. Today, we're joined by Dr. Lindsay Bull, and we're going to be talking about lasers and eye care and advanced optometric procedures on the OI Show. Thank you again for joining us for this episode. Today, we're joined by Dr. Lindsay Bull, and uh, it is so good to have you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me and inviting me. This is fun. Yes, we're stoked. So, Lindsay, tell us a little bit about where you practice, what your practice looks like, what kind of setting you're in, yeah. and uh, and so forth. So I practice in Tulsa, Oklahoma currently, and that's where I did my training as well. So I went to Northeastern State University, which is in the bustling metropolis of Tahlequah, Oklahoma, um, where they take a total of 28 students per year. So really big class sizes there as well. Um, but did my training there for four years and then did my residency in ocular disease and refractive surgery at the office, which I currently work, which is called Eye Care Associates of South Tulsa. Um, the great thing about doing a residency in Oklahoma is Oklahoma has a really nice scope of practice for ODs within the state, which includes um, pretty much free reign as far as pharmaceutical prescribing, even some scheduled drugs. Um, so we can do all of our glaucoma meds, all of our antibiotics, antivirals, anything like that. But we also have our laser laws as well. So we're doing the yeah, capsulotomies, the peripheral iridotomies, the SLTs. We're even able to do PRK. Um, and so our scope of practice is really, really nice when you work in Oklahoma. And obviously, there are special courses and there are special trainings that you have to do and you have to pass. You have to have proctored you know, procedures done by ophthalmologists to be able to get those abilities. Um, but once that's done, you're able to have free reign over your patients. And so the practice that I work in does all ocular disease. We have a dry eye clinic. We have our own ASC. So we're doing um, all of our own like cataract surgeries, blepharoplasties. We have a retina specialist in-house. And so we're able to keep a lot of our patients here, which is so nice because I can see a patient who has diabetic macular edema, send them to our retina specialist. I don't have to wait to get a consult letter back. I can just walk up to her and say, hey, so what do you think about that patient and what's the plan? Um, and so it's, it's really nice as far as patient care goes. Um, you, you make Telequa to be uh, a little less than it is. I've been there and I actually <laughs> like the town a lot. And uh, lecturing for the 28 students per class is one of yes. the most enjoyable experience uh, for those of us who come from the outside because... It's so welcoming. So uh, I, you didn't say it was bad, but uh, yeah, it's an I awesome school. I love it. I loved having a class of 28. Um, and, and that's part of the reason why I chose to go to school there. It came down between Tahlequah and ICO in Chicago. And ICO's classes are fairly large. And once I got to thinking about it, I was like, you know what? That one-on-one -on -one, um, interaction with the professors, just being able to go into their office, having a relationship with them, there's no way they're going to let any of us fail. And so, and that's what really I experienced during those four years is that we did establish relationships with every single one of our professors that we've carried on beyond school. Like most of them, I have their cell phone numbers and contacts and, you know, we keep in contact. They invite us still to come do lectures to the class of, you know, 28 students still. Um, and I agree with you about lecturing to 28. It's far less intimidating. It's much more conversational, way more casual than lecturing to like hundreds of people. Yeah. Yeah. So you're you, like, you have this unique situation that you've never practiced without the ability of can't, exactly. right? 
there's there's so many of us who may have been taught something that we can't do. Um, for instance, I was taught how to do injectables, right? How to inject uh-huh. into the eye. And um, I think with special training, you're allowed to do an EpiPen injection in Washington state, right? Okay. Um, so that that's like <laughs> a, a big deal, right? Yes. Um, so we, you know, each state's a little bit different. We've now got several states with laser privileges. What are the things that you do on a, a weekly or a monthly basis that many of us don't do or can't yeah. do? So every other Friday, um, I have a PRK schedule where I am in our refractive surgery suite and I am the one performing PRK. So that's done twice monthly. And then on the opposite Wednesdays, I'm over at our surgery center doing YAGs, PIs, SLTs. We have a laser over there at our surgery center. Um, and so there are at least four days a month where I have specific clinic time set aside just to do all of my laser procedures. Um, now we do have lasers in-house in our regular office too. And so if somebody emergently needs a PI or something done, I can do those really any day of the week that I'm in clinic as well. But we do like to have each doctor have kind of like a set clinic schedule. It just makes the patient flow a lot easier. I know that when I'm in at the surgery center doing like my YAGs and my SLTs and PIs, um, I'll have anywhere from 20 to 30 patients probably scheduled in a couple hour block there. And I just sit down at the laser chair and my nurses bring the patients in and take them out and bring the patients in and take them out. And so it makes it a really, really easy process for the patient. Um, I tell my patients, you know, I expect you to be in our office for under an hour to get this done. And most of that time is going to be just to dilate your eye or just to put pilocarpine in and get, and get the eye prepared for actually having the laser procedure. But the easier that we can make the process for the patient, the happier they are. So having those nice surgery laser schedule blocks has been really nice for our patients. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, so, you know, there's, so, so there's going to be some people who are like, you know, I don't, I don't know that optometry should do PRK, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Is that really something? I mean, we can, we have laser surgery centers where people can go and have LASIK. So exactly. why should we have, and, and why do you do PRK, why is that something that is, I mean, obviously a big part of your, your, your weekly schedule. It is. And, you know, I think that's a really good question because if you look at most refractive surgery centers, it's not the ophthalmologist who is doing the planning of the case or the planning of the surgery itself. It's usually the optometrist that is partnering or working with that ophthalmologist who is doing all of the study of the patient, who's doing their preoperative exam, who's doing the postoperative exam. So if you look at the person who knows that patient more intimately, in most cases, it's going to be the optometrist, the one that's making those decisions as far as is this cornea safe to do these procedures on? Now, when you look at PRK, we're not going inside the eyeball at all. All you're doing is debriding that tissue and then stepping on a pedal. So as long as we have the new Alcon laser, it's really nice um, for prescriptions, let's say like somewhere around a minus four, probably takes about seven, eight seconds to do. Um, And the laser is going to, and all that preoperative testing is going to get iris registration. So if the patient moves, that laser is following them really all your job is in surgery is to keep their head straight forward. If they move too much, the laser is going to shut itself off. You reposition them, step on the pedal again. It starts over from where it, it, where it stopped off. So I think majority of, you know, being a good refractive surgery provider is making sure those preoperative measurements 
are really, really good. And the post-operative, you know, instructions and post-op visits are looking great and the patient's progressing the way that it's supposed to. It's not really the surgical procedure part of it. That's the difficult part in those cases. And so that's why, you know, when I look around at other states, it it makes me kind of step back a little bit because I'm like, whoa, way more of the time and way more of the investment is going in preoperatively and postoperatively than during the actual surgery time. Mm -hmm. So um, in PRK, we need to get rid of the, uh, we need to debride the cornea. How do you go about doing that? Because it sounds like that's probably the more complicated of the procedure because the yep. machine, you know, in, in entering does the machine all. does a lot of the work for you. So what, what does that process look like for you? So there's a couple of different ways we can do this. Um, the way that I like to do it because patients tend to not be compliant, especially when they're anxious about having a surgery like PRK is we have these little like cells, these little sponge cells that we soak in an alcohol solution, usually about 20 to 30% alcohol, the rest saline. We soak those for a little while, get them really saturated. And then we set that on the cornea for about 20 seconds. Um, The eye is obviously numb with tetracaine for paracaine before this happens. We give our patients Ativan before surgery. And so um, helps with a little bit of the anxiety there. But that way, um, if they move the eye, the sponge just kind of stays right on the cornea there. If they move it slightly, it doesn't matter. It's going to stay right there. After 20 seconds, we take a pair of forceps, take it off. And then we take a wax cell sponge and that tissue just comes right off. So I usually do mine in a circular pattern going clockwise. And then I take a little spud and I clean up any leftover epithelial cells that might be there. That whole process takes about 30 seconds to do. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, I think other- that... Oh, go ahead. Please tell us the other one. The other way, there is a little well device that you can use. It's a little well that has a handle on it and you can fill up with the alcohol solution in there and hold that on the eye. I will say the first case I ever did was on um, one of our employees, my actual scribe. She had had LASIK previously. She needed a PRK enhancement. And so she was one of my proctored cases to get certified. And so I was like, this is going to be easy. She sees these patients. She watches this all day long. She's going to be like the ideal patient for this, right? No. And so we laugh about it to this day because I use one of those little wells and she moved her eye. The alcohol spilled out of it. The next thing she knows, she was like, well, my eyelids are burning. And I was like, well, it's because you moved your eye. And so (laughs) since then, I was like, you know what? The sponge is more fail safe. We're just going to use the sponge from here on out. And it works really, really well. So I think for many of us, the uh, the concern about the complexity and well, I don't really know if that's something that I can do. And, you know, just as simple as what you describe here um, with with the uh, with the debridement procedure and mm-hmm. understanding the laser and how it works, I think really helps to demystify the complexity of something like yes. doing PRK on patients. So let's talk about YAG. Uh, like, so I, I saw my, my aunt the, uh, about a month and a half ago, she lives two hours North of here. Um, and so I, you know, emailed uh, or excuse me, I faxed over the referral form to the surgery center. Um, three weeks later, she said she hadn't heard from them. We, we realized that we had, it was that they, that maybe they didn't receive it because who knows what fault, whose fault it was. So now a month later, she finally gets scheduled. She called me yesterday, you know, a month and a half, two months after seeing me. And now she's scheduled for a YAG. And uh, she's just been complaining for the last year and a half that she hasn't been able to see. Yeah. Um, so is that, pro- is that how it, you deal with this situation? Is it taking you know, two months to get a patient helped? 
no, it doesn't take two months. Um, usually if I, like this morning, I saw multiple patients who have PCOs and who we've scheduled for YAGs. Um, and they are usually put on our schedule sometime within the next week or two. Now, occasionally for patients who are referred into our office, we know that they're being referred in for a YAG from just optometrists in the area who may not own lasers themselves. Um, those patients, we check their insurance benefits and everything before they come in. So those patients are getting same day procedures pending that everything on the inside of the eye is healthy. So we're always doing an internal examination of the eye before we're shooting a laser so we can have all of that really documented. Um, but yeah, a lot of those patients who are being referred in are getting YAGs same day. Um, but yeah, I, I would say two months out, the the only time we're going to be scheduling a patient two months out is because that's at their request, not at our Mm -hmm. request. Um, Mm -hmm. we're doing it faster than that. So it seems like it's a really challenging thing with a YAG because you have to get it positioned and you might hit the IOL and then, you know, patients are going to go blind and you're going to crack the IOL. And you're gonna, so is it really, really scary or is this uh, something we've made it out to be complicated as well? I think it's something that's more made out to be complicated. And, you know, going back to like what we were saying about the PRK, a lot of it is going to go into that preoperative examination. That's the part that's more difficult than the procedure itself. Making sure that the eye is healthy enough to withstand a procedure that you don't anticipate any complications. Um, you know, looking at the zonules, making sure that those are healthy, that the lenses has good position on the inside of the eye, that the haptics are where they're supposed to be, that we're not seeing any internal inflammation on the inside of the eye that we could be exacerbating by putting energy into the eye. So recognizing all of those things and assessing all of those things before we're shooting a laser is always going to be the most important part. But as far as getting behind the laser itself, um, it's fairly easy. It's much like playing. If you've ever played like I compare it to 007 because that's what I had when I was growing up. Um, You had the little laser pointer with the red mark. As long as you know what you're looking for and what the tissue looks like, it's pretty easy to measure it up. Um, We have two different type lasers. Um, They all use Haney beams as far as getting the laser to focus on the right area of the eye. And you can get those Haney beams to focus on the anterior cornea. You can get them to focus on the posterior cornea. You can get them to focus on the anterior lens. So you do really have to know what you're looking for and making sure that you're focusing on that PCO or focusing on that posterior capsule. Um, But once you do that, those Haney beams just line up so beautifully and you can set your offset to even set it just a little bit. So the laser shoots a little bit posteriorly or a little bit more anteriorly. So depending on kind of what you think your eyes are doing and what you think your vision is doing, once you have a number of these under your belt, you can change that offset a little bit. Um, I tend to make my offset just a little bit posteriorly posterior to the opacification. And that seems to work really, really nicely for me. Um, but those, once those Haney beams line up, it's pretty easy after that. Wow. You almost make it sound like we should be able to do this stuff. (laughs) You know, I I would like my, you know, my personal, and I'm sure you feel the same way is it would be so much easier as ODs to practice. If nationally we had the same abilities. You know, let's say I decide my husband and I decide to move out of Oklahoma one day. Well, now I'm having to take all these different state licensure tests, figure out what's different about their scope of practice than what's our scope of practice. I mean, that's really difficult. And, you know, for a lot of a lot of people who work on state lines, that makes it really difficult too, because like 
where I'm at in Oklahoma, we don't have um, a border far away from Arkansas or Kansas. Their prescribing abilities are different than what we have in Oklahoma. So let's say a patient lives in Arkansas or Kansas. Well, we may be having to have them pick up prescriptions in Oklahoma versus sending it to the one by their house just because of those prescribing differences. Um, mm-hmm. And that makes that makes our jobs a lot more difficult. Yeah. So, um, Lindsay, what what do you see in the next five years for the the movement across our country? We're seeing several states starting mm-hmm. to get privileges. And um, what are you seeing states doing for scope to be able to expand that? And, you know, people may be listening who have no idea uh, what it takes to, to get this even legal in, in the state. So um, I know you're, you've got your finger on the pulse of this sort of thing. What, what do you yeah. see happening in the, in the near future? So this actually happened with Arkansas just recently, and we were involved um, or like to think that we were a little bit involved in that fight as well. So you were, um, you were. Yeah. (laughs) So um, what we really did as far as like just being an individual physician are writing letters of references as far as like, this is what we've done. This is how many procedures we've done. This is the training that we have to do to be able to do these types of procedures. This is why we think it qualifies us to be able to provide this care for these patients. Um, And having just all of these letters and all of these statements from physicians in our state who are doing this actively and have been doing it for years with successful outcomes, I think makes a difference. I was actually just reached out to, I think it was the state of Washington, um, and I have to write a letter, but there's one of the states up in the Northwest um, is looking for expanding their scope. And they wanted me to write like a witness statement as far as like what we're seeing in Oklahoma and what we're doing. And so I think that's always the first step, getting physicians who are able to do this, who have been doing this for a long time to be representatives um, for the optometric board within that state. I think that goes a long way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, very helpful. This has been insightful. I thank you uh, for, for, for leading our profession and, you know, practicing to the full scope of what you do. Um, If people want to, want to, want to follow you, learn more about what you're doing, learn more about your practice, what, what kind of references or, or or recommendations would you give people to, to look for, for Lindsay Bull? So we have, our office has an Instagram page and a Facebook page at South Tulsa Eye or Eye Care Associates of South Tulsa. Uh, my personal email is drbull, at southtulsaeye.com. And then I have my own personal um, Instagram page, Lindsay A. Bull, B-U-L-L, and then Lindsay Chumick Bull um, on Facebook. So any of those spots. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for listening to the Optometric Insights show. We appreciate uh, you liking and subscribing and sharing this information with your friends so we can get the word out about amazing things happening in optometry. Thank you. And we'll see you next time. Thank you. 